Pantheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. It's March 12, 2017, and we are discussing psychedelic healing with our guest today, Dr. Neil Goldsmith. Neil, welcome to Entheogen. Oh, hi, Joe. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, we, we've uh, met over the years uh, at various events in the city uh, around Cosm at the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. Um, I think I saw you uh, uh, once or twice at the Alchemist Kitchen, and then you, I think you emceed the Horizons Conference, if I remember correctly, a few months ago. I actually emceed that conference every year. We've been doing it for, uh, this is now our 11th year. And uh, it's, it's a tradition now in New York City. And so, yeah, I, I, I host it, and I also do the... Um, uh, speaker curation. So I get a chance to bring in people like Alex and Allison, which I've done. And my 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 Horizons partner, um, Kevin Baltic, does really all the heavy lifting. And the two of us have been doing it for a decade now. Yeah, it's a great conference, you know, some good uh, East Coast representation of this uh, psychedelic movement. Uh, and you have been doing it for a number of years. So you've been you've been kind of in the scene for a while. Um, before we get into some of the points from your 30 themes on psychedelic healing, uh, document that you so helpfully sent along. Um, just wanted to speak a little bit more broadly about your experience and, uh, you know, your therapy practice. Uh, you got back into psychedelics after a couple of decade hiatus, I guess, around it, turn, turning 40, I guess, is when you kind of got back into psychedelics. Is that right? Yes, more or less, that's true. Um, you know, when I was younger, when I was in college, um, I was uh, very interested in psychedelics and I, I took mostly LSD for, for a few years, um, and then kind of just faded out from that. It wasn't really, I didn't have a bad experience and there wasn't any decision. It's just that as I got out of college and entered into my, you know, graduate, um, school life and, and, uh, and, and, and then, you know, a corporate career initially as well, I, um, faded away from that. Now I always found it, I, I always knew that there was, uh, psychedelics around because although I wasn't traveling in those circles and I rarely spoke to anyone about it anymore, um, occasionally there'd be a news article, you know, 300,000 hits of LSD seized <laughs> and you know that it, you know, that there's, that there's certainly usage going on. So that was kind of comforting to me. But as time progressed, when I got to be about 40, I'd always really thought I, I was working, uh, after my doctorate, I started working for American Express and AT&T. I was doing a very sexy job. I was doing emerging technology strategy, strategic planning for artificial intelligence and things like that. And a uh, really wonderful internal consulting type job on change management and innovation, all the sorts of things I was interested in, did my dissertation on. However, I was completely miserable there because it was a, um, you know, a really corporate and commercial environment. And I was just not that way. There was a day meal and a night meal. You know, the day meal went to Express and the night meal, you know, uh, explored and got high and, and, and wrote to people like uh, Sasha and uh, Rick and um, Alex and Allison and, you know, connected to the community that way. So eventually when I was, you know, in my early 40s, um, I had a, 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 just, it, it was time. And I left corporate and uh, opened up my, reopened my clinical practice that I'd had at the master's level, got some additional training in yoga psychotherapy, in um, uh, psychosynthesis, and in imago relationship therapy. And, uh, uh, you know, I never look back, really. I do a lot of public speaking. I wrote my book, Psychedelic Healing, and um, uh, I see clients 
so that's that's my life now. Interesting. So uh, before we go any further, I know that uh, a past guest and friend of ours, uh, Dr. Jamie, would uh, would love for me to ask this question about imago therapy. You know, your thoughts sure. on it, and specifically, she's uh, been getting into encounter centered couples therapy (ECCT). Can you speak to that at all? I can't. I've never heard of it. Actually, it sounds encounter. Say it again. Encounter. Encounter centered couples therapy. So it it, it sort of focuses on that interaction part of imago. I would want to know more about the the uh, what what encounter means because you know when in the in the sixties when they had encounter groups those tended to be kind of confrontational. Um, you know, it was the period there was a lot of confrontation. There was there was protest. Even you know uh, the Merry Pranksters and Ken Kesey had the electric Kool Aid acid test. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much can you take? Can you handle it? You know, the, the hippies were basically dosing society. And for those that don't know, dosing is the term for being given a psychedelic without your knowledge. And that's the, the mental equivalent of rape. So the hippies, broadly speaking, were doing that to society, broadly speaking. And society, broadly speaking, said, I'm freaking out. I don't want to do this anymore. I will never do this again. And you can't either. And that's how things got shut down. So just I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. But the way it's working now through the medical school research and through the spiritual approach of the divinity schools, uh, and Alice and Allison's very, very prominent approach, um, and ayahuasca ceremonies for that matter, which are also quite spiritual and gentle. Um, the, the psychedelics are being re-reintroduced into society now in a way that I think is, um, you know, society's so far having been convinced to try again, and society's so far having a pretty good trip this time. Yeah, that's that's really true. That uh, you know, it seems almost uh, on a wing and a prayer at this point. Uh, you know, I hope that this uh, society remains uh, open minded to it. I mean, it certainly seems like psychedelics are getting sort of more entrenched and getting their tentacles, you know, farther into uh, various uh, areas of society. Like I know, you know, we always talk about tentacles. Oh, what a terrible metaphor. How about let's use the metaphor of the mycelium is spreading? Yeah, that's a uh, better one. (laughs) That's a a mushroom, that's a fruiting body of the mycelium. That's that's really the true organism. It's funny, mushrooms are a wonderful metaphor because there really is one organism and all the mushrooms which we think of as the individual organisms are just the fruit, the fruiting body of the underlying organism. And it's a nice metaphor for the way humans are together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about uh, there like one of the videos of yours that I watched and prep for the conversation is about identity as the individual and uh, a larger consciousness. And mm. I didn't really make that connection, but the the mushroom analogy works really well, really well there. Yeah, well, it's all a nested hierarchy, I guess, in a way. Um, so when you're, and, and it's not just um, you know uh, hierarchical in your in conceptually, but it's also developmentally over time in individuals and also for society as a whole, I guess. You know, this process of moving forward, uh, the, the successive loss of egocentrism. So when you're a baby, you know, it's just you and the nipple, I guess, you and mommy, and then it's you and the family, and then. When you get a little older, it's you and your buddies, you maybe, maybe you and your school, um, you and your country you'll fight for, you know, the identity in, it, it increases what you identify with and what you, what you would die for even really. And what you identify in a sense is you. So, you know, uh, and then you, you, you go up to the planet, you have an ecological perspective and the universe as a whole, perhaps, then you have that cosmic consciousness and it's how you identify yourself. So, you know, for me as a parent, when I had my son, I mean, it's just the, it, it's a different relationship for me experientially, psychologically, I guess, viscerally than anything, any other kind of relationship I've ever had. Parent, lover, it doesn't matter. So now that I have a son, my identity has kind of expanded a bit. My balloon of identity has expanded to include him. 
to some extent. So death it, changes too. The view toward death changes as you expand your consciousness like that. Yeah, yeah. As your consciousness mushrooms, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and just going back to the the story of your your professional history, it was really fascinating. I didn't know that you you know you'd kind of done corporate life. Um, that resonated with me. I had. Uh, not quite the same timing, but some of the stuff that you mentioned resonated with me. I'd also spent time working uh, in that corporate environment in New York um, and had to, to sort of consciously pry myself out of it. Um, not not in a therapeutic uh, tilt, but did you say you returned to your clinical setting? Was that something that you began before you got into the, the corporate world? And, and I guess really the question I, I want to ask is, do you think that your experience working in that corporate world at least financially helped enable what you're doing now and gave you a little bit of freedom? Yes. Well, um, uh, it, it, not, it's not that so much. I mean, it, it certainly did. And, you know, I, I uh, it was a good experience financially to some extent, to a modest extent. But more importantly to the psychedelics uh, work that I do now, the professional work, is the ability to use PowerPoint. The ability to stand up on stage, <laughs> the, the practical skills, to, uh, yeah. very much so, and you know uh, the ability to—I don't know—like uh, when I was at American Express, I would go out to the individual divisions and talk to them about emerging technology and how they could use it internally to make themselves more efficient. So I'd have to analyze, you know, talk to them about their situation, what the problems were, situation psychological, really, and you know where their need was, really, and then how this te technology might be able to fill it. So that kind of interpersonal consulting skill, all of those things. Um, have been very helpful. And so that's what, you know, I do the, the Horizons Conference. I know Alex and Allison and lots of other folks because I reached out to them early on. And, um, you know, uh, being up on stage, you know, and giving presentations, it's it's a wonderful, uh, it's a skill and it's a gift or a, a contribution that I can make to the community, um, you know, that I, I enjoy doing. But there's a first part to that question too about uh, American, about the corporate work. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember what it was, but... We'll get back to it, I'm sure. Oh, I was asking um, how you previously had done clinical work and then it sort of parlayed oh. into this and then you returned to it. Yes, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, at the master's level, though, it's, it's, it, I, I was a Rogerian therapist. And R Rogers it had this theory of client-centered therapy where basically you just wanted to mirror the client. And so it's really one of those annoying kinds of therapy therapists where they just repeat you. And, you know, you say, I'm so angry at my wife. And they say, well, I can see you're very... Um, <laughs> You no, know, you say, well, I, I, I could kill my wife. You say, wow, I see you're very mad. So you rephrase it a bit, but you don't add anything. And they say, well, what do you think, doctor? And you say, well, I can see you're really curious about what I think. You know, it's just a mirroring. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds very sounds frustrating, for the, frustrating for the client. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making kind of a joke out of it, and it is an effective therapy. I, I shouldn't really denigrate it entirely. However, it's just that after I went through that process of corporate and then started doing psychedelics again, that was, you know, the trigger, of course, around 40, I was introduced to MDMA and, um, and then uh, decided I was going to do um, a psychedelic and had an extraordinary experience, with her, which I write about in my book. I call it the mother of all trips. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it was my reintroduction to psychedelics after 20 years, and it was surprising and shocking and wonderful and changed my life. It wasn't really the way I did it in college, which was fun and games with uh, my, my buddies. But um, this was, you know, as an adult, my, my mode was to, uh, go inside, be on my own, be alone, um, <clears throat> get into bed, you know, close my eyes, get in a fetal position, cry and spend hours um, getting inside me and getting to know who I really was underneath the personality, who I was originally, who I was born as the original, who's, who's the real me. 
And uh, that was a wonderful, you know, process for me. But you know, place. Anyway, to, to your question about the earlier technique, you know, I was one of those annoying therapists. And now, of course, it's like the exact opposite. It, it, when I'm with a client, I'm not all that much different than the way I am with you now, although my, I, you know, I'll listen more. But my purpose is, is, is different. The purpose is to help and assist and understand and, and well, mirror, actually, in a sense, um, to them today. So my goal is different than in this interview. But my presence is sort of the same. Because I don't, I don't use technique and I don't hold back and I just do what I, my heart and soul tells me is present and real to do for the purpose of that event, which is therapy versus, versus a, uh, an interview. Uh, Neil, you, you published uh, something on Facebook this week that I got uh, a big kick out of. And I guess someone had asked you at a talk um, about about barbarism and tribalism and how something like LSD could produce uh, a Charles Manson as well as a, a Ram Das. Yeah. And and you answered that, you know, it's it's just a tool and that LSD makes Charles Manson more Charles Manson and, and it makes Richard Albert Ram Dass. Yes. Yes. And, well, that was not my comment. I should say I was posting someone else's response. But yeah, ah, okay, okay. lay that out. How can psychedelics produce both Charles Manson and um, Ram Dass? And the person said, well, yeah, you give LSD to Charles Manson, you get more Charles Manson. You give LSD to uh, Richard Albert, you get Ram Dass. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to say it. Um, this, yeah. yeah, Facebook is wonderful. Anybody should face, Facebook friend me there, by the way, you guys who are listening. Neil Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, there was already a Neil Goldsmith online. So, um, but you'll find me. And yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of wonderful. So, so there were responses to that. There was also a thread there on microdosing, which was very nice and got picked up by the uh, people from Symposium, uh, Symposium who um, uh, republished that, retweeted that actually. So, um, microdosing is another good topic that we've been discussing on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I loved I loved that quote because I felt I felt like that was really they really hit the nail on the head, right? Of of yeah. all the kind of exploration and in, in the end, it's really it's just a deeper conversation with yourself. So well, the end, end result will be something like that of a, a but, more you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but honestly, you know, it's funny. I, I, when I heard that quote, I thought it was sweet and succinct and well, well worth, re, you know, reposting because it stimulates conversation, as I'm saying. But honestly, I don't 100% agree with it so totally because, you know, while it's true that if somebody's already, you know, uh, through, through history and childhood and whatnot, you know, sort of let's call it twisted to just use a, the clinical term, you know, just one word that, that summarizes it, like Charlie Manson, let's say. And then you give the acid. Yes, you know, it's look, there's not enough research to really say it definitively, but we all know that that can, you know, increase or enhance or doesn't, you know, can can make that that monster more monstrous, let's say. And yes, in a person like like Richard Alpert, perhaps who was more receptive, perhaps I'm not, you know, again, it's it's a clinical issue and it's a research issue, but nonetheless, generically speaking, so he's more open and therefore he turns into Ram Dass. Fine. But I don't believe really that Char the Charlie Mansons of the world are doomed to be, you know, worse of themselves because I really do believe in the illuminating um, uh, power of psychedelics. Not, it's not just psychedelics, actually. It's being in touch with the deepest self. There's lots of ways to do that. Um, uh, you know, sensory deprivation, sensory overload, you know, meditation, uh, rocking, movement, you know, cannibalism. There's so many different ways to notice your state of mind um, and psychedelics being the most reliable and, and, and powerful perhaps and therefore the, the one that people have used for all these years. But nonetheless, I think I believe in, in the illuminating power, the clarifying power, the maturing essentially power um, or, you know, promise, let's, let's just say, not power per se, but the, the ability 
the, to facilitate those processes in individuals, and even therefore Charlie Manson, I believe. Um, now, you know, perhaps he's got organic brain injury, or I, you know, the, you can't talk about Charlie per se specifically, but I think even the monstrous of us, you know, can be looked at um, optimistically, at least in terms of potential, is what I'm really trying to say. Did you say uh, cannibalism as an alternative to psychedelics? Did I? <laughs> yeah, you did. You did sneak that one in there. I, I caught that. Yeah. Oh God, you, you guys are sharp. Well, yes, that's actually um, that's our our next podcast right. about oh. cannibalism. I think that's a great topic. Well, okay. Listen, no, no, no. Let, let, what I meant by that was, if you think about the way the tribal feels, uh, you think about it as like object objectification. So, uh, ancestor worship is another one where you have a shrine to the ancestors, maybe their bones even, or, you know, something like that. And they're a part of the family still, in a way, alive. And so um, there's this way of, like, um, uh, my point really was how one can become aware of oneself, to separate oneself from just the hypnotic, everyday, not noticed living of life, you know, and all we really have, this is like Tom Roberts actually talks about the multi-state theory where, you know, we, we, we accept dreaming, but it's very, very proscribed and it's only when we're asleep. And then we accept, um, you know, uh, normal consciousness. And then everything else is sort of like weird and wacky. But he says, you know, he wants to give prominence to other altered states. And, um, and I think the acknowledgement, the intouchedness with your own different states of mind and with the fact that we, that there's something we call consciousness. You know, there's a phrase that kind of sums it up. It, it takes a very self-aware fish to notice that it's wet. <laughs> there's a great quote from uh, Infinite Jest, one of my favorite books, David Foster Wallace, that, that, that the little anecdote of two fish swimming through the water and they pass an older fish and the older fish says to the young fish, how's the water today, boys? And then the two fish continue to swim along for a little while and look at each other and say, what the hell is water? <laughs> Oh, exactly. I just love that. That's so perfect. What the hell is water? The older fish. Exactly. So, you know, so psychedelics then for me are um, facilitative to the developmental process, the natural human developmental process. And that's why they're, you know, universally, well, except in Western civilization, but universally across the planet over the history um, incorporated into tribal practices, rites of passage, and also the cosmologies of the, about the way the universe works, the way consciousness works. So, um, you know, for, I think, you know, although every, you know, lots of, there's lots of different ways that tribes use psychedelics, but for an analogy purposes, perhaps, or just, um, apocryphal, um, archetypically it's stages, rites of passage at different stages of life, going from childhood to youth, going from youth to marriage, to, um, to child, to parenthood, to elderhood and to death. And those are the typical transitions of life. And if you look to tr tribal practice, frequently there will be um, a psychedelically loosened or facilitated uh, rite of passage to help, um, you know, people change from one phase to the other, essentially overnight. Because you'd resist. You'd resist if you were, you know, if you're a 10 year old and you're at the top of the, uh, of the hill as a, as a kid. And the adults come over and say, here, take this like spear. It weighs almost as much as you. And you're going to be terrible at this for the first few years. Come join us as adults. You know, you might hesitate and run for mommy. But if you're in a rite of passage where the whole tribe's there and there's rocking and chanting as well as uh, a loosening agent, a psychedelic. Um, and then in the morning, you just, you know, with the adults, it, it, it makes it easier, I think. So at some point in, in our history, we went from, you know, using psychedelics that way. Um, I, I guess it, maybe, maybe psychedelics have always been kind of separate from Western culture. But 
um, we we have certain substitutes like we have the you know the inert sort of inactive uh, you know, substance, uh, yeah. like the Eucharist, for example, um, as a substitute for like in a, in a psychoactive sacrament. Um, w- why do you think that is? And, you know, what, what consequences do you think that that has that we lack this sort of like connection with, uh, with the psychedelic sacrament? That's a wonderful and big question. Um, because it really speaks to the whole, you know, process of civilization and the evolution of, of humanity. It's a really big question and a really good one. And it's not, although it's big, it's not all that complicated, I think. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, population growth um, and the, the uh, advent of agriculture. Because once, you know, first we were foraging uh, nomadic type people. Not, uh, we foraged at least and we um, ate, you know, this sort of an, um a Neolithic diet, which is still so healthy for us because we that's, you know, 90%, 99% or whatever of, of our development had been under those foraging natural conditions and where where it was sustainable as well. You know, everybody's looking for sustainability today, but back then it was sustainable. Population growth was slow and, and, and you know, we, so, but, you know, at a certain point when agriculture was developed, then we began to develop surplus and we could settle down. And we had to settle down if we were planting. So um, we, we, we changed, and then we corralled the animals we used to follow, you know, in their migration paths. And we, you know, had cattle. So, you know, but once we were there and we had surplus and we were starting to organize and there were larger numbers of us, then there had to be kind of some kind of organizational hierarchy, not just like a tribal setting where there were 70 of us and you could have, you know, clan heads and, and, um, and a chief, but now you needed, you know, different levels, you know, it's the way civilization emerged. So, the, you know, the metaphor, the, 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 the sort of story that I think of in describing this is that, you know, the emergent warlord on his horses with his men and their spears, their weapons come into the tribal setting into the, um, and they find, you know, the, um, shaman and they say, all right, shaman, you know, we we want you to co-opt your people basically we want you to um tell them to pay my taxes and fight in my wars and that if they complain about it's a terrible life then you tell them that their reward will be after death and then they'll have all these virgins or they'll go to heaven or they'll whatever it'll be it'll be lovely then and so if you're really good and follow my rules because i'm divinely you know appointed then you will go to heaven afterward you'll have your reward so tell them that and the shaman says, you must be kidding. You must be crazy. I won't do that. That's ridiculous. So the, the warlord says, all right, off with his head. And the head rolls. Now, the assistant shaman is standing there watching this. And the um, warlord says to him, all right, what's it going to be? Listen, man, you know, if you come with me, there'll be silk, marble, gold, rubies, you know, all this stuff. You'll, I'll build this massive church for you. Or... <laughs> And so the assistant shaman says, well, gee, rubies, gold, off with my head. Rubies, gold, off with my All right, rubies and gold it is. And so the, sh- the warlord co-opts the pr- the, this very sacred process. Now, what happens next is he says, all right, listen, shaman, the people are still up there. So we're going to take away the sacrament from them. And only you're going to take it. Now you're going to be a shaman who takes the drug. It's fine. You're going to divine the future. and You're going to tell them where they lost their jewelry and if their wife's cheating on them. But the people can't take it anymore. Okay, fine. So you do that for a while. Then after a while, he says, you know something? This isn't really working either. Centuries later, you know. So um, what we're going to give you is this wafer. It's just like psychedelics. It's great. And if you, you know, go in your heart and go in your mind, you'll get there. Don't worry. You don't need a drug after all. You know, just here, take this wafer and make and wine instead. 
Now, by the way, wine scrapings from the biblical days, from the bottom of dried, dried out jars, archaeologically, they find that wine wasn't just great fermented grapes. There was all sorts of stuff in there. Frankincense and myrrh, not really, but, you know, herbs and spices and mushrooms, too. So the wine was psychoactive, tended to be psychoactive. And, of course, you know, like I say, so I think over time it was a co-optation process that enabled um, uh, more efficiency because people are less uppity, um, more hierarchy, which is also more efficient, more, more effective at creating surplus and wealth um, and power and, you know, therefore wars and weapons and stuff like that. I think that was the way it emerged. And so Descartes, you know, in, in the Middle Ages said, look, you know, tell you what, you know, you don't really have to be um, like, you know how our ancestors used to pray to the tree before they chopped it down? Well, you don't really have to do that anymore. You can just go ahead and rape the land and, you know, charge interest and do all that other stuff and become capitalist, you know, become mercantile. Uh, if you go to church on Sunday, only Sunday is really that's the day you got to be good. So the rest of the days, you can go ahead and do the other stuff. So that's, you know, to me, that's the way civilization evolved. So now um, we're with the connection to the East uh, since the 1800s and more prominently since World War II and the connection to the South, you know, the Amazon and whatnot, um, because of globalism, because of jet transport, because of modernity, the very effect of all that development turned into its own demise because now we have access to. A, um, an older, uh, different way. And it's almost like we've, we've come in a spiral. So we started out at the bottom of the spiral, you know, um, uh, happy, integrated into nature, but dying at 30 of an infection because we didn't have science. So we evolved the frontal lobes, the, uh, the, the part of the brain that does the analytical thinking, the opposable thumbs, the eye, visual acuity. And we began, we, we developed a complex of, of bodily capabilities that enabled us to change the, the world and create better survival. But now we're halfway around the spiral, halfway up, 180 degrees, dialectically, I mean, uh, diametrically opposed to the uh, where we started out happy. We were now unhappy, but we live to 90. All right, well, we keep going. Do we come back down and get back to nature like, you know, Kaczynski, the Unabomber or bin Laden would have had us do? No, no, no. We keep going. We power through the uh, effects of, 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 of Cartesian duality. We reunify through the reintroduction of psychedelics. And now we come full circle. One level up, for, and we have a neo-pastoralism, a new tribalism that is uh, informed by science, but not overwhelmed by it, not dominated by it. So we're seeing things with our eyes open now, a Buddhist style. And so me, for me, that's the, that's the arc of, of, of the growth of civilization, and that's what I shoot toward. That's, my, that's where I shoot for on the horizon, aim for on the horizon. I love the metaphor of the the spiral, um, you know, taking us uh, up a level, uh, and you know, we kind of are facing this decision point where we could uh, actually retreat and kind of slide back down, uh, and you know, that's exactly where we are right now is is uh, facing this kind of. Uh, you know, this dichotomy. Um, and uh, it, it's kind of interesting how psychedelics uh, play such a huge role after being suppressed for so long. And uh, it's one of the only things that gives me hope these days, because it leads to exactly the sort of behavior changes that we need as a, as a society. You know, ecological awareness, we've talked a lot about on the show, uh, and, and just, uh, you know, de dealing with our personal demons and getting along better as a, as a community. Um, psychedelics, you know, help with all those things typically. Um, mm -hmm. what is your sort of best vision for, you know, the way the reintroduction of psychedelics will, will help society as a whole? Well, you know, it's, I'm so, that's exactly the next question, because if, if this arc, uh, this spiral of, of civilization works that way, and that's where we're headed, and there is this sort of duality 
uh, between materialism and spiritualism, or even between modernity and um, tribalism, let's say. Dualities are wonderful, actually, because when you find a duality, you know that neither side is ever going to win. I mean, like uh, modernity and, and, and tribalism. We're not going to go back to a tribal setting, except in some transformative, transformed way. And, and certainly modernity isn't working. So what's the third alternative? What's the synthesis of that dialectic? Um, and so, you know, for, for me, this idea of the, the, this spirituality, the reawakening of spirituality in the West and the embrace by so many people who are, including me, who I love and who um, are using psychedelics as a tool. I mean, it's, it's such an extraordinarily beautiful thing and so encouraging, as you said. However, I think the ultimate way where it will get to, I called it neo-pastoralism or, you know, when you come that full circle, is not actually um, like a, a monastic or a religious or even a um, school of thought kind of approach. In other words, there has to be, a, we're not fighting modernity. We can't abandon modernity. We don't want to destroy it. And yes, we do want to be more natural. Of course, we want to um, enhance and save and enhance the natural world and become more integrated into it. Nonetheless, we don't want to leave you know, the, the knowledge of modernity and science behind medicine and whatnot. Um, so, so how do we combine the two in a way? So with medicine, for example, right now, the, the, the uh, industrial approach to medicine is we have hospitals everywhere. It's very expensive and we keep people on life support well beyond, I think, where they would want or where we should be. All right. But yet, you know, so in this modern, in this new uh, post postmodern world, you know, if postmodern is the world of malaise and, and deconstruction. Post postmodern is the reintegration world. So if we get to this post postmodern world, uh, do we build these huge hospitals uh, and everything else like, you know, huge interstate highways or all the other things that enable modernity? Well, no. But do we completely destroy them and go back to, um, you know, um, nuts and berries and roots? Uh, no, of course not. So there, there, maybe we have regional hospitals and uh, locally, perhaps we have clinics that handle 99.9 percent of human need. And perhaps, perhaps our lifespan goes down. I don't know what it is now. Let's say it's 76 or whatever. Let's that that includes child mortality, by the way, infant mortality. If you if you take the count of how long we live from if you make it through childhood, you know, if you're from 12 or 16 or whatever they counted from, then the lifespan is, is much longer. It's like in the 80s or, or whatever. It is. But whatever it is, let's say it's in the 80s now, if you survive, if you get through uh, childhood. <clears throat> and let's say if we implement what I've described, where you only have regional hospitals and local clinics, let's say the life expectancy goes down from the mid 80s to the to 80 or something like that, where we actually reduce our lifespan. Not drastically, but we do it in a context that's so much healthier. And by the way, we could make up for that difference by just healthier living, for example. So what I'm saying is, you know, the, the new world isn't going isn't to be one where we're all, you know, I think, walking around in white robes and chanting ancient um, uh, chants. I think the new spirituality is one that is thoroughly modern or post postmodern, actually, you know, uh, and not a, a retreat. Although those are good models, the tribal way of, you know, paleolithic diets, for example, and, and uh, many things about tribal living um, are wonderful models. But I don't think we try to adopt them, uh, you know, uh, as they are. I, I have a chapter in my book called The Ten Lessons of Psychedelic Therapy Rediscovered. And the rediscovery part is that all the lessons that we've now uh, come to over the last, I don't know, 50 or however you want to count it, years of modern research with psychedelics, 
like, for example, you don't just strap them down to a hospital gurney and inject them with a high amount of LSD and expect them to have a good time. Although many, many did, like Ken Kesey and Albert and um, um, uh, Allen Ginsberg, you know, all were treated that way in ridiculous VA hospitals, you know, funded by the CIA through front front funding agencies like the Messiah Macy Foundation. And anyway, they had beautific times. But nonetheless, we've learned that in general, people don't respond well. And, you know, that's why they call it psychato mimetic, mimicking psychosis, because they give them it that way. And then six hours later, they come by and say, how are you feeling? And the person be having a terrible time. So they, but we've learned. So now we do it in a, in a home setting, in a lovely homey setting with couches and pictures of your loved ones and you know, preparation and all that sort of stuff. So we've learned, we've learned that lesson. We've learned about dose. We've learned about the different drugs themselves. We've learned about the set and setting, uh, importantly, preparation, um, handholding, follow through, um, meditation, all these lessons we've learned, every one of them has a tribal antecedent. So the, the mindset, for example, um, well, in tribal settings, um, the, 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 everybody loves and accepts psychedelics. You don't have to hide and do it secretly. Uh, the setting, you're in a cornucopia, pharmacopia in the, in the jungle of different psychoactive plants, all of which you know the dose and the drug that's in it. So, you know, the knowledge that we've learned, the lessons we've learned uh, contemporaneously are re replications of the old way. So I think it's really important to uh, take advantage of the, uh, of what we've learned to, um, you know, benefit from, uh, but if we're going to be post postmodern, if we're going to be integral, we can't have a fight between tribalism and modernity. We can't have a fight between spiritualism, spirituality, and, uh, the material world. Cause after all the material world, when you boil it down to subatomic particles is just patterned energy, probabilistic patterned energy. And frankly, that sounds like a definition of spirituality to me. So, there's only one reality and whether you're a poet or a scientist or a, a, a shaman you're we're all groping with language to describe one the same thing and so that's the transcendence of the duality um and that's what spirituality is going to look like in the future facilitated by psychedelics um uh again how does that uh sort of uh, transcendence of of you know spirituality versus materialism uh, c compare and contrast with McKenna's archaic revival. Um, <laughs> compare and contrast. Um, <laughs> it's not welcome a, it's back, not a, welcome not back to middle school. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I love reading Terrence and I, I knew him and, and loved, you know, uh, listening to him and, and I went to his, uh, I actually had a workshop with him, uh, at one point at the, um, New York open center. Um, uh, uh, let me tell you this anecdote, actually. It's got, not got to do with your question, but I'll, I'll tell it quick. Um, I had had a mushroom experience where in preparation for it, I took my normal nutrients that were, you know, I thought, this was many years ago, that I thought would enhance my cognitive uh, performance the next day. And foolishly, without really doing any research, I took a, a relatively large dose of lecithin. Uh, and the next day when I took my mushrooms, as I came onto them over the course of about an hour, I became progressively sleepier. And it really freaked me out. I, I had just started taking mushrooms as an adult again. This was over 20 years ago. And um, I, I was scared maybe they were bad mushrooms or I was being poisoned. I didn't really know that much. And um, uh, so I went in and out of a sleepy state 
But after a while, I realized I, I come to I came to realize that I wasn't getting deeper and deeper, like as if you had taken over overdose of heroin or something and you were dying. You know, I, I came to trust this, this state a little bit more. And so I went in and out of a very sleepy, very, uh, you know, unusually. So I also had an auditory hallucination, which I had never had, you know, uh, on a psychedelic before. So um, a very unusual experience, which I, I couldn't really understand. I asked Sasha about it, and he said, wow, that's so fascinating. I'm going to write about it in my next book, you know, um, in, in, um, that was going to be in T-Call. And uh, then about a week or two later, I had this workshop with Terrence. So I mentioned it to him. And, but because it didn't seem that significant, I kind of forgot to mention the less significant part of the story. I just thought it was bad mushrooms. And I asked him, you know, could this happen from bad mushrooms or old mushrooms or something like that? And he said, without prompting, well, um, you know, no, I've never heard of such a thing from, from old mushrooms or anything, unless you've taken lecithin. <laughs> and you can imagine my reaction, you know. I said, where did you figure? So he, he couldn't trace it back. It was like Dennis had told him, or when I later got to know Dennis and asked him about it, he didn't really remember. But I plant that into the mindset of those who are listening because it's a fascinating experience I had. It's unexplained. It did excite Sasha and um, and Terence gave that kind of corroboration in a way. So hopefully someday somebody will study that uh, as to why that ha why that took place. It was sleep. I mean, I was soporific. I couldn't really stand on my feet. Uh, it was very very interesting. All right. So sorry for that digression. Um, <laughs> no worries. Tell me, remind me again what, what you, the prior question was. Well, so you were. The archaic Rob? Yeah, right. Like you were describing this sort of like up leveling on the spiral, you know, of, of uh, you know, tribalism versus uh, modernity and, uh, and, you know, not wanting to retreat to one or, or you know, like have, uh, you know, modernism win out, but sort of transcending those two. And uh, it just reminds me of McKenna's idea of the archaic revival, you know, a throwback to, yeah. to the prior time. And Rupert Sheldrake. Is another one. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake writes it similarly. He's got a book, uh, Resacralization of, of Nature, I think it's called. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's just that I think that we have this swing back and forth. We went from a tribal setting, you know, to uh, abandoning our soul, our connection to nature, um, and trying the frontal lobes and the analytical part of us, you know, run rampant, um, our, our ability to manipulate the, the world. It's, it, it's an immature, it's an adolescent and very powerful skill that we've let run rampant. And the experiment with, um, you know, paying to God on Sunday and paying to Caesar the rest of the week or whatever the phrase is, has failed. And you can see that in the perfect storm of global climate change and, um, uh, uh, topsoil depletion and, and water tables and overpopulation. It's just, um, and so, yes, the reintroduction of psychedelics, you know, in, in the past few decades um, offers, psychedelics matched, uh, uh, paired with meditation, by the way, I need to add, because um, it, it offers, as you've said, I think a hope for civilization, a reawakening and a realignment. Now, I believe there's going to be a dieback, uh, a human dieback. Um, I think the, um, the slope has been too steep for too long and um, there's too many factors and I think it's already started. People are dying in the Horn of Africa. I think actually billions of people will die over the coming few decades and there'll be a, you know, a, a re, um, I, you know, there'll still be life on the planet. Obviously there'll still be computers and civilization, but I think there's going to be a, a large dieback. I think it's going to be big, like in the, in the um, collective consciousness, like the black plague has been for so many centuries. Um, and perhaps that'll be a wake up call for us. I hope we don't just build strip malls again and have another dive back years from now. Um, but you know, uh, 
so I think that, um, you know, I think that's the process we're moving there. Um, and as far as McKenna is concerned, you know, God bless him as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a, you know, sort of like a John the Baptist in a way, sh shedding light on what we're involved with and how we're moving forward um, as a society. And, and Rupert Sheldrake, I highly recommend the work of Rupert Sheldrake as well. Um, Neil, you you um, you mentioned it's not only psychedelics, but psychedelics coupled with uh, meditation, or or whether it's therapy or something else. Yeah. Is there something you you might recommend to to someone for their own, you know, someone who's not involved in in therapy, or um, maybe even perhaps meditation, or some sort of yeah. uh, exercise, or something that they could also pair with their own practice? Absolutely. Well. Like, like I said, meditation, psychedelics really go together. One without the other doesn't really work that great. So, you know, if you have, if you take a psychedelic trip and you have a wonderful experience, lots of good insights, right? You know, famously psychedelic insights fade. And I think the reason why is because of the context we're, we're embedded in the weave of our lives, lives, you know, the jobs, the environment, the family, the wives, you know, all, all of that tend to draw us back, um, like, uh, into the old, old ways. So, um, Meditation acts in a way like as a way to hold the insights in place. Now, meditation, by the way, I don't mean anything having to do with an Eastern tradition where there's a particular way to do it, some fanciful way to breathe. Um, I don't mean that. I mean just um, going down to your soul and getting in touch with, with your deepest self. Breathing is, of course, very important. And most important about breathing, when you do, I did a study once trying to extrapolate out the, the core of meditative breathing and what actually uh, is taking place. What's the goal? And I realized that the goal is to um, increase oxygen and also reduce carbon dioxide. Uh, a, high, a high amount of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream is associated with panic attacks. When they do blood, take blood from people who are experiencing panic attacks, um, carbon dioxide. And part of it's because when we get tense and anxious, we breathe shallowly. So we ex exhale the top third of our lungs and the bottom third, that carbon dioxide doesn't get exhaled. It gets picked up by the blood again. And when it comes around to pick up oxygen, it picks up carbon dioxide. So slowly the uh, amounts of carbon dioxide in the, in the blood increase and you get anxious because it's essentially, why does the body get anxious with, with increase in carbon dioxide? Because you're essentially suffocating. Why aren't we in teaching this in uh, middle school to kids? This is, this is the kind of thing that I think needs to be just uh, like well, well, well understood by now. You know, it, it just well, seems it could be so... Like, it could be like oxygen, carbon dioxide, <laughs> oxygen <good>. contrast. <laughs> and oxygen, <laughs> yeah. increase in oxygen is associated with feelings of well-being. So what I tell my clients is, listen, you know, if you're feeling anxious, just exhale fully, empty your lungs out to the point where you like cough a little bit, you know, get it empty. And then you'll breathe in, you know, as much as you, your body needs. And over time, you'll increase the level of oxygenation. So, um, you know, so I think that's very important. And you think of, so let's say you have a trip on, on, on Saturday. It's wonderful. You have insights. You write furiously in your diary on Sunday. Now, Monday, you know, you go back to work and by Friday, you're back to normal. But what if Monday morning you spend 10 or 20 minutes thinking about focusing on remembering the insights, the special feelings and insights you had that Saturday when you were in that different state, when you were really in touch with who you truly are. And that morning before you go to work, you think about it. You say, oh, yes, yes, that was incredibly, that was so beautiful. That was really, truly me. Now you walk off to work in that state of mind, almost like in tears a little bit of joy. And you go off and you have a beautiful day. 
Now you're worn down a bit, but Monday evening you come back, you spend another 10, 20 minutes doing the same thing. Are you meditating? Well, many people would say no. But for me, that's as a psychologist in clinical practice, that's what I want people to do when they meditate. I don't want them to take some uh, uh, arcane tradition and subsume themselves to it in some way. I want them to, um, uh, to get down to who they truly are and to, to remember that. So think of, of meditation almost like, let's say you know, you have a, um, you're, you're, you're a dune and you're, you're protecting you know, the, the, the beachfront community. Now a storm comes along and washes away the dune. Now the community says, no problem, we'll bulldoze it back up, we got the dune again. Storm comes along the next week, boom, boom, boom uh, dune is gone again. They say, all right, all right. So we pull up, put back the dune. Now we plant dune grass. That's psychedelic insights. So you take a trip, you say, all right, I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna, you plant the, the, the insights. Now a storm comes along, washes the dune and the new insights away. Okay, fine, so what do you do? You bulldoze it back, plant the insights, and then you put netting over it. And that holds everything in place. Meditation is the netting, is the netting. So it's like a combination of the explosive, episodic, insightful experience of psychedelics with the day-to-day uh, -day keeping your feet planted, keeping the dune grass planted, keeping it in place long enough for it to gel. And, and it's like you have a, let's say you've built an edifice, a brick house. And you take a psychedelic, the loosening aspect of psychedelic. I mean, psyche delos, delos means to deliver and psyche is translated as mind, but it really means soul in Greek. Psyche delos, the manifestation of your soul, which is what I've been talking about. But there's another form of psychedelic therapy called psycholytic, which was more popular in Europe. And that was lower doses interspersed with um, uh, psychoanalysis and repeatedly given at lower doses. And lysis, in, in, it means to loosen, psycholytic. So the loosening aspect of psychedelics softens the mortar in, in your brick structure. Great, you take your bricks, you pack, pile them up on the side of the building site, you look at the blueprint at the outline, and you say, all right, great, look, I had a three-car garage, forget that, I want a yoga studio. Cool, you take the bricks, you put them back in place with new mortar, and now you have your yoga studio. Now, like I say, you know, by the end of the week, the, the bricks go like memory metal. <laughs> back into the old configuration because of the pressure of your outside world. So if you, if you hold them in place through meditation long enough for the mortar to reharden, then you've got changed behavior that's sustainable. So meditation, and by the way, meditation without psychedelics is, to, to paraphrase Einstein, he said about science and religion, um, about psychedelics and meditations, like psychedelics uh, without meditation is lame in the sense it can't walk forward, can't give root, make progress and instantiate. Um, but meditation without psychedelics is blind. So um, you, need the, you need to occasionally inform your meditation practice with clarity. It's like you're, 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 we're all going up this mountain and the path goes up and down and up and down, but basically up, right? But you know, and you know it, you're going to the peak, but there's clouds. So you, know, you can see three feet in front of you, but you can't see the peak anymore. So you begin to wonder with all the up and down, am I really still going up? So you take a psychedelic, the clouds part. You see the peak, as, not just see it, but you know it's there, like the way we know things when we see them. It's not scientific data, it's direct gut knowledge, you know it. Now the clouds come back, that's okay. Because you know, you know you're basically going on the right path. So that's the role of psychedelics on, for, with meditation. So to me, meditation and psychedelics uh, go together and neither one really works that well without the other and meditation by the way redefined meditation redefined in the post postmodern way of, of, of you know modern approach.
approach to spirituality that can incorporate neurotransmitters, you know, and, um, and the like, uh, and subatomic particles. That's what reality is. Anyone call it spirituality because that opposes it to the material world. There's no opposition. There's only one thing. Speaking of uh, McKenna again, he um, he famously uh, talked about how you know it would be possible to get to these states of consciousness through drumming and dancing and uh, you know meditating and whatever else. Um, but he said something like you know, but who's got time for that? Or or as a as a culture, <laughs> you know, we we don't have time for that. You know, there's some urgency to this. You know, ecological devastation and whatnot. Um, do you do you disagree with that? It sounds like you're saying, Neil, that um, you know th these are like meditation is is you know it can help you reach a certain state, but I guess psychedelics are sort of necessary to I guess catalyze a certain uh, you know level of understanding. Um, so do you do you sort of uh, disagree with with McKenna's statement? I'm not sure. It, it, basically, I don't think I think the word necessary is the problem. Um, I think these is, these are matters of degrees. And things are integrated. I mean, after all, you know, in tribal practice, it's not just psychedelics, um, but also drumming and chanting, too. So I think it's additive, actually. And um, I don't know exactly the best combination or what's most powerful or for which situation. I'll leave that to research to determine over the you know coming centuries. Um, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, a good way to have it like a touchstone for what's healthy and what works is to look at nature. Uh, unencumbered by modernity and look back to tribal settings, look to animals, the way they, you know, act naturally in, in their natural environment. And so, um, you know, I, tribal set peoples have used um, these, you know, substances with rituals and you can do them individually. So you can get into a, a transpersonal state through just chanting or, or just through meditation, I guess, too. Uh, people do it. But, you know, I'm very much not in favor of um, very articulated philosophies. I'm more you know, interested in Zen type of approaches of emptiness and, and, and monism, oneness, uh, than I am in the 18 levels of this or the three aspects of that and, and the, the, the different you know, stages or levels of spiritual development. Because I, I have no doubt that the mind when trained through practices and breathing and, and mental uh, focused exercises can do all sorts of very, very powerful, interesting, unusual things. But, you know, if you, um, <laughs> if you, Jim Carrey, uh, the, the famous, you know, comedian who's so flexible with his face, he learned how to wiggle his ears. He didn't, he didn't know how to do it, but he, he couldn't do it. And as a kid, he practiced every morning for like 20 minutes or whatever. He tried to train in front of the mirror, tried to train his muscles and the slightest little twitch he then reinforced. And over the years, he came to have uh, you know, muscular control over his ears. He can, you know, twitch and move his ears. So I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but um, there's many mental internal practices that one can develop, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're optimal. Um, you know, uh, we can control our autonomic uh, nervous system. We can control our pulse rate and our temperature. Um, but what is that really? They call that a, a siddha. It's, it's, a, it's a, a demonstration of, but not the same thing as. Uh, some, it's just a demonstration of your uh, your mind control abilities in a way, your your um, discipline, and those are wonderful traits. But uh, for me, holism and soul and the depths of us and a direct connection with that attained through psychedelics is what I'm looking for. So when I talk about spirituality and meditation, I'm certainly not talking about um, a um, you know an ancient tradition generally. So you've given some very practical tips uh, for, you know, listeners who are interested in some form of psychedelic therapy, whether self, 
guided or, you know, uh, under the auspices of another therapeutic practice, um, namely breathing, uh, you know, meditative practice of some sort. Are there any other tips you can you can give to to listeners, um, you know, who may want to even bring this topic up? I know you don't, uh, you know, yourself practice any kind of psychedelic therapy. Um, I guess otherwise you wouldn't be able to speak so freely about it. Um, but right. listeners who are in some kind of relationship with a therapist, um, how can psychedelics, you know, sort of add to that uh, development? Wow. Um, well. I think um, it, it's a matter of just being honest and true with your therapist. Um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, uh, people frequently come to me, uh, you know, and they, they want to do psychedelic therapy. And as you pointed out, but I don't do that. I couldn't do that. Uh, however, I, you know, I'm supportive of, of uh, everybody's development. I say, well, look, I can't tell you to take psychedelics or prescribe or facilitate really in any way. However, if you can take psychedelics anyway, take them the day before you see me, because then you'll be kind of opened up and it'll be, it'll aid, um, our, our, our work. So I, I would, um, and you know, I would shop around for, you know, an appropriate therapist. Um, I think it, it, it has to do with coming to see yourself clearly. I think of psychedelics, not as a medicine, really. Um, uh, people refer to it as a medicine. I, it, it's different. You know, for me, it's kind of like the, um, light on the forehead of the miner's helmet. Um, anywhere you look is illuminated. So if you look at the mountains uh, miles away, you see the beauty of nature. If you look at your hand, you notice the opposable thumb or you understand what water is, like you said. Um, and if you look, if you gaze inside, then you see more clearly it's illuminated. So it's the illuminative um, function of psychedelics that are valuable and are, of course, um, scary, too. I mean, if you're not ready to see the darkest part of you or some problem that you're feeling a lot of pain around, um, then the process can be, you can resist the process and it's the resistance. You know, you ask people, you, the common person, you, you, you know, the average person, what is, what is LSD like, or what is psychedelics like? And the average answer will be, well, it's really wacky. Um, you'll see a lot of weird colors and stuff and, you know, it can be scary and, you know, but you know, and some of them might say, you know, it can be, you know, transformative, but mostly people will talk about those effects. But to me, those aren't the effects of psychedelics at all. Those are the, um, reactions to the action of psychedelics. They're, they're, they're fear-based reactions to resistance reactions to the illuminative nature of psychedelics, which is why um, surrender, uh, release, um, acceptance. You know, the, the ayahuasca church, one of them is called Santa Daimi, which is give me, Lord. It just, I'm, 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 I surrender, I'm open. I'm open to what you have to show me. Now I've cried, I cry every time I trip you know, internally, seriously. But um, uh, what's more healing than warm salt water? Um, so it's a surrender process, and it's a trust in not just um, the materials, which you can gain over time, um, uh, and, uh, but also in the way the universe works, the way the body works. This natural alignment process that we have, it, it's almost like, um, like your posture. You know, it's like when you talk, if I say the word posture, probably everybody listening to this kind of like straightens up their back. <laughs> I did. Without really thinking, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of like that. If you see it, if you see it inside, you know, you naturally, your body has a natural healing and alignment kind of process to it. It's amazing when you, when you think about what happens when you have a cut and then, you know, let's say you need stitches. So you go to the doctor, they, they clean out the debris, they put some antibiotic on it so it won't get infected. They stitch it close together, Right. And so far, no healing has taken place. Then the doctor leaves. 
Now the healing begins because the body is, of course, what does the healing, that natural process that we don't know that much about. Um, but holistically speaking, we call healing and, and health. And so um, that's, you know, what happens when you when you illuminate, when you see things. So over time, people become more uh, accustomed to the experience, the, the novelty and oddity of the experience, the power of the experience and come to trust and relax. Over, at least I did over time. And that's when I think the realignment um, really begins to take place. And it's not an either or. It's a um, it's like developmental. It builds upon the past. Um, it accommodates, uh, you know, you and your history and humankind as well. Um, so, so the breathing, I think, is important. Um, I think it's important. You know, there's different ways to take psychedelics, of course. There's recreational ways where you hang out, you know, let's say typically with MDMA or something in a, in a group dance type thing. Uh, you know, it's be- people have beautiful, lovely experiences from that. However, that's not the same thing as a sort of more meditative or introspective or whatever, you know, that kind of focus. Um, and so the focus is really important. And the set and setting, you know, the sort of the, you have to make the setting kind of mirror the, the where you, your mindset, where you want to go, your intentionality. Intentionality is super important. Um, you know, people say, should I have a checklist of things to think about, uh, work on during my experience? <laughs> and I say, yeah, go ahead and do that, but leave it at home the day of the trip. You know, it's no, it's really good to focus and think and go inside in preparation uh, for what you might want to work on and think about and all that stuff. But then on the day of, you have to surrender to the process and let the you, you, not the just the drug is just illuminative. Really, you have to let your soul emerge, let your soul, you know, uh, be heard and seen and felt and disidentify with the defensive acquired strategic quote unquote neurotic personality that we acquired in interaction with our parents as early children in early childhood and re-identify with the person we were when we were born before our parents had at us with our soul with our essence with our truest self that's the intentionality i think uh, the worldview, the personality theory the developmental theory that helps guide me and what i try to share with my clients um, uh, you know, that helps, I think is a helpful perspective to take in, in, in life in general, in development, a developmental process, um, as well, stepwise, stage-wise developmental process. We have challenges and resolution, challenges and resolution all toward greater clarity, greater in touchedness, um, you know, uh, love. And, and then ultimately like Alex and Allison service altruism. Um, you know, uh, focus on others rather than self. Those are all the hallmarks of, 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 I I want to make it sound all fancy, but spiritual maturity or natural, not spiritual, just just the natural, because spirituality and wisdom is really the natural endpoint of normal, natural, healthy human development. Optimal human development ends in wisdom. So I don't make it supernatural. It's natural. Uh, Spirituality is always embodied, by the way. I mean, people can speculate that there's spirituality or God separate from humans, but, you know, it's all humans talking to humans using language and describing things that they experienced inside their, their bodies, inside their animal bodies. So spirituality is always embodied and the physical world is, you know, patterned energy. So why do we have that duality at all? It's, it's a koan, really. You know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Well, here's like, what is, how do you see the world if you can see it both as spiritual and as material at the, in the same focus? 
Wow. Well, that's uh, as good a place as any to leave the conversation. I think that's a thought-provoking question to ponder as we try to reconcile the you know spirituality versus modernity and so on. Um, so that's, uh, wow, quite, uh, quite a profound uh, <laughs> endpoint, Neil. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm still thinking about that one. <laughs> well, you know, you got me on a loop here. <laughs> there was, um, a loop or a spiral? <laughs> yeah, spiral. There's a famous story of. Uh, I don't Henry know, but I'm hungry for humans. <laughs> I think Jeremy Normie talked about when you asked the um, natives, the tribal peoples, how did you come to combine these two substances to make ayahuasca? Because, you know, there's so many common combinations you could have made between bark and leaf and root. And how did you know? They say, well, the mushrooms told us. And so people smile at that, but really we have to get our minds around, well, wait a minute, the tribal peoples are, have the same brain, the same sophistication as us. What do they really mean when they say the mushrooms told us? And that speaks to the buzzing, blooming um, uh, energy of all plant intelligence, the net of all plant intelligence in the jungle that they were in touch with when they took the mushrooms. That's what told them. So that's a very different worldview. Fascinating. Well, Neil, uh, we've got, I think, lots more to talk about. Uh, if you're ever uh, willing to come back uh, for a future episode, uh, we could dissect any number of uh, further topics because you're uh, just so well-spoken and you've got so much uh, interesting uh, things to say about you know, just how we reconcile this personally and culturally uh, where we find ourselves in this uh, modern era of, uh, you know, especially with the resurgence of um, research around psychedelics and how that comes into play. So um, thank you so much for, for doing this uh, episode of uh, Entheogen. And uh, I know you're quite social on the interwebs. Uh, where where yeah. can listeners find you and connect with you? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I had a lovely time. It was a wonderful conversation. You guys are great interviewers, giving me the hard questions. It's, it's great. Um, so thank you for that. I'll come back anytime you need me. Um, as far as uh, getting a hold of me, I said uh, Facebook is fun, Neil Marshall Goldsmith, or you can just um, find me at my website, which is uh, uh, Neil, N-E-A-L, goldsmith.com. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Neil. Really appreciate it. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. Mm-hmm.